everybody. Welcome to the August 10th, 2018 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Gazzutti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the Sec Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke, coming to Colorado to speak at an event in Steamboat Springs this weekend. Protests are scheduled to greet Secretary Zinke during his stay. Patty Calhoun from Westward. Uh, so, Steamboat Springs is not usually a hotbed of political activity, uh, liberal or conservative, but it looks like it's going to be this weekend. What do you think? Well, where Zinke goes, controversy follows. I think he's mixed up interior, being Secretary of the Interior, with being head of inside deals. You know, he makes Pruitt look like he was mild. Pruitt wanted a Chick-fil-A for his wife. Zinke wants a microbrewery in Whitefish, his hometown. So we're going to hear a lot of complaining and probably see some beer drinking. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School, also a big fan of beer drinking, uh, as am I. So I'm right there with you there, uh, David. Uh, what do you think of Zinke's upcoming stay and, I guess, the proposed reaction? Well, the event is the, the Steamboat Institute, which is a think tank in up there, uh, has a very major national annual event. So he, he's coming out for that. So even though Steamboat is not usually on C-SPAN, I, th I think it will be now, and, and that annual event should be. And I just say... Uh, as far as I can tell, the protesters are planning on protesting rather than rioting, which puts them ahead of their counterparts in lots of other places of the country, so good for them. Justine Sandoval, political activist, good to have you back on the panel. Uh, Justine, you see protests like this, and hey, that's, that's, it's an American tradition, I think, gosh, for over 200 years now. Um, but what kind of effect does that have in an election year? Does it get a little bit more attention? Can it actually boost the other side because there's more attention drawn to it? What do you think? No, I think right now, as in an election year going towards November, um, drawing that distinction between Colorado values here and what the federal government do does is very important. And right now, Zinke, the geologist, doesn't quite fall in line with a lot of our Colorado values here, especially when it comes around protecting the environment. And the recent comments he made about liberal extreme activists being the reason why we have these wildfires is another issue that you know brings it more home for a lot of us. And I think that these protests do make an impact during election season. Ross Kaminsky rounds up the panel, uh, talk show host at 63KHOW. It's good to have you back. Ross, what do you think of the proposed protests? Is this much to do about nothing, or could, could be actually make some headlines? I, I can't believe Patty thinks he's worse than Pruitt. I didn't think anybody <laughs> was worse than Pruitt. I hope you're wrong. Uh, all I'll say about, about Zinke is, you know, if I go another month or two or a hundred without ever hearing his name again, it'll be, it'll be fine with me. But the Steamboat Institute event is a wonderful event, and people should check it out, whatever they think of Zinke. Cool. Petitions for seven different ballot issues for this year's election were turned in this week, with issues ranging from fracking well setbacks and transportation funding to campaign financing. The Secretary of State's office also announced that the issue to raise education funding officially qualified for the ballot. Patty, we, maybe not all of these will make the ballot, but they all had a pretty significant amount of petition signatures turned in. So even if one or two don't make it, it's still going to be a lot of issues and big issues, uh, hefty, controversial issues in the ballot. Is there going to be enough political oxygen in the room for all of these issues? Is there going to be enough airtime to buy on TV, on radio, for the incredible amount of advertising we're going to get, certainly from the oil and gas industry against 97? Then you also have the counter 108, which is private property protection. You've got the two transportation issues. I don't think the Independence Institute has a really, really deep uh, 
bucket for that one. But you know the Chamber of Commerce is going to be pushing it very hard, the, the effort to raise money for roads. Education is going to once again be really bringing out a lot of money. And let's not forget, Denver looks like it's going to have at least five ballot, ballot initiatives that are just for Denver. You've got the Mental Health Initiative to raise the sales tax. You have this Parks District raising sales tax, raise sales tax for college tuition and their food good food access. So we are going to be spending a lot of time in November trying to figure out exactly what is happening on the ballots. 71 was supposed to rein in a lot of this. Good for Colorado that it's working, that citizens can still push initiatives, and these are almost all initiatives that don't amend the Constitution. I think, uh, I'm not privy to the exact details, but I think the Institute's promotion plan for their initiative starts with Elise Caldera and the sandwich board kind of walking up and down 17th, which is, which is a good start, you have to imagine. And sponsoring on Channel 12. That makes sense, absolutely. Uh, David, uh, Initiative 97 gets a lot of the headlines. It's the anti-fracking proposal. It's the increased setbacks for wells. And the backers of the initiative make no bones about it. They're looking to get fracking out of Colorado. It, it at least feels to me that uh, there's some commonalities between this for the left as the personhood amendment was for the right. That while it, uh, it looks like it would be in common with some of the uh, beliefs, it does go too far and probably won't get the uh, support. But I could be wrong. What do you think? I think that, that that's a good comparison because on both sides you have very strong and, and sincere, uh, powerful moral beliefs that this activity is, is just wrong per se you know, leave it in the ground, leave it in the womb. Uh, but uh, the large middle of the country and of Colorado is okay with some restrictions on that but does not want prohibition. And we saw that repeatedly in the, in the votes on the personhood amendments. And we've seen it, I think we'll continue to see that on the fracking issue. Regulation is one thing, but having a setback that says we set it back so far that nobody can ever do it, um, you know, that's like saying, well, you, you can have abortion, but you have to have a 50-week waiting period between when you, when you apply and when you can, when you can do it. Um, I, the, the one that's made the issue, the ballot already, has been the education initiative, which is a constitutional amendment because it would, dra properly so, because it would drastically alter our taxpayers' bill of rights and, and control over tax increases. So that's, they're doing that the right way in that sense. Colorado voters have historically been very willing when their local school districts ask them for uh, tax increases to vote for that when there are specific plans for what they're going to do with the money. They've consistently rejected, saying, let's jack up our taxes hugely, send the money to Denver, and then hope that Denver sends some of the money uh, back to our local school district. Justine, for a second here in Colorado Inside Out, let's be optimistic. And let's say that everything makes the ballot. Which one do you think makes the biggest impact on the election? Um, you know, it's hard to tell. The ballot seems like it's going to be a very large ballot. I think definitely um, the education funding piece will be very important. Um, right now, you know, it's, it's taxed on people $150,000 or more in the state. So basically we've decided to tax the rich because Tabor has put us in the position where we have to do this in order to continue school funding. And I think as we're 47th, 48th, I don't know where we are right now at the moment in funding nationwide, but it's becoming a huge issue in Colorado, and we need to figure out how we're going to fix our school funding. So to me, that's going to be an issue that is going to be the most impactful um, as far as our future goes with our children and how we're going to move forward with education in the state. Uh, Ross, uh, I'm of the opinion that the transportation issues, because you really have 
I guess technically three choices. You can go with uh, and raising the taxes for transportation. You can go with just bond it with the current money in the general fund. Or you could say neither one, the roads are fine. I guess I'm not really sure who votes that way, but it's technically a possibility. That seems to me to uh, speak to that middle-of-the-road voters, the folks that may not be dyed-in-the-wool red or blue, but the folks like, yeah, I kind of waver between elections, but I do have an opinion about transportation funding. I don't know if that's going to get more attention or enough attention because of everything else in the ballot. When you look at all these ballot issues, assuming they all make it, what do you think? I, I'm thinking of these right now as... Uh as a group, in the sense of you've got all these liberal things coming, raise the taxes for this, that, and the other thing, ban oil and gas more or less in the state of Colorado, raise taxes for roads. I actually think that these have the potential to be a, a pretty big boon for the Republican Party in Colorado, turning out people against all of these things. You know, I personally am against almost everything we've talked about except bonding for the roads without raising taxes caldera thing actually is the is the only one that i'm for of all the things we're we've talked about so far although the um the independent panel for redistricting is very interesting and that's something i support as well and it's it's worth talking about at some point colorado has joined several other states in suing the federal government over an agreement with a company that wants to post instructions online for making 3d printed firearms Attorneys General from 19 states and the District of Columbia, including Cynthia Kaufman of Colorado, have joined the lawsuit citing worries that these weapons could be extremely difficult to trace and detect. Of the 19 Attorneys General, Kaufman is the only Republican. David, you are our esteemed lawyer at the table. What do we need to know about this, both from the legal standpoint and the details when it comes to blue, uh, the blueprints for 3D printed guns? Well, uh, some folks remember uh, Attorney General candidate Kaufman's uh, rousing speech at the April 2014 uh, State Republican Assembly where she fervently indicated that when when appropriate she would sue the federal government over the Second Amendment. Um, it took her a long time to get around to that and it turned out she was on the other side of what most of the delegates who voted for her uh, expected. But in a legal sense this is more of a First Amendment issue because what she is arguing for is censorship of files about how to make firearms. Of the files in question, all but one of them involve met traditional metal firearms, which people have always been making at home and indeed have a constitutional right to do so. But she wants the government, which has no legal power over this at the moment, there's never been a law saying you can't distribute information about gun making. She wants to prohibit the distribution of that kind of information. It's an act of futility, among other things, because these files were first posted on the Internet in 2013, have been downloaded and shared hundreds of thousands of times. So her proposed censorship idea is futile in any case. And as for the one file out of all the ones she wants to censor, there's only one that involves a gun that actually is made of plastic. And that uh, production uh, instructions comply with the law we've had since 1988 that any firearm you make, whether it's you're a gun company or you're making a gun at home for yourself, has to have at least 3.7 ounces of steel in it that is in the shape of a firearm. So this plastic gun is fully in compliance with the existing federal law on plastic guns. And correct me if I'm wrong, I could have heard this wrong, but is that piece of metal in that particular gun has anything to do with the operation of the gun? No, it's there to comply with the 1988 okay. federal law. Gotcha. 
Justine, uh, 19 attorneys general, but one of them is, is Cynthia Kaufman, and she's the only Republican. Somehow it's always Colorado. We're always involved in all these kinds of issues. First Amendment, Second Amendment, a lot to work with here. What do you think? Well, you know, considering Colorado's history with uh, sh mass shootings, it seems appropriate that she would take action on this. You know, as we have the discussion year after year of how we're going to make, um, you know, our country safer, how we're going to increase gun laws, or if we should, what we should do moving forward, this type of action, I think, is important as we move forward and come up with those solutions. To me, when I hear a plastic gun, that sounds, you know, pretty frightening that somebody could possibly make a gun that is untraceable at home. And also, we already have a hard time identifying w weapons, you know. We've had situations, Tamir Rice in Ohio, having a toy gun and police not knowing the difference between a real gun and a fake gun. I think there's a lot of issues in this. And uh, considering Colorado's history, I think that this was probably the right move for Cynthia Kaufman. Ross, has this horse left the, uh, I guess, virtual barn years ago? Absolutely, it has. Uh, it, I, I think that the issue of, of Colorado, you know, a place with a history of mass shootings, I mean, if, if that's the mindset, you should want everybody to have a plastic gun because there's no gun less suitable for a mass shooting than a plastic gun that you might get one or two or three shots out of before it's not useful anymore. But this isn't really a Second Amendment issue. It's a, it's a First Amendment issue. And it's, it's prior restraint of somebody being able to say something online, talk about information, the history of jurisprudence in, in the United States, and David's probably better suited to talk to this than I am, but we don't do prior restraint generally. You, you get to talk. If someone's going to take what you said and do something wrong with them with it, then we do something about the bad guy. But we don't, we don't just tell people you can't talk. And, and frankly, this, what Cynthia Kaufman is doing plays into exactly what I thought when I interviewed her and most of the other Republican candidates for governor on my show, that she was by far the most liberal candidate. Uh, so I'm, I'm not surprised, but it's meaningless. Patty, you've only edited a newspaper for 41 years, I think, if I'm doing my math right. So you've probably read a couple things about the First Amendment. First Amendment issue, Second Amendment issue. It's a First Amendment issue, and like so many First Amendment issues, it's really, really tricky. It's, you know, it's kind of like the KKK marching through Skokie. I mean, or that was it the Nazis, I guess, marching through Skokie. It's... The things that are the most hateful for a community are the ones that, to really support the First Amendment, you have to allow. Um, I don't know. First of all, people have much better copiers than I am. Talking about 41 years, I worked in a, I worked in a secretarial pool when copiers were bigger than this table. I still can't get ours, you know, that's now the size of a coffee cup, not to jam. So I don't know how they would be able to do this. It's making me think of when Joyce Meskus at the tattered cover refused to comply with a request to. Uh, I think it was the Anarchist Cookbook. But, you know, there are books that tell you how to make bombs. There are books that tell you how to make guns. There are plenty of those things. And she was asked by the feds to comply and say who had bought copies of that book. And she refused. And that is a tricky First Amendment issue, but it's one we have to uphold. The Denver Police Department began rolling out a new use of force policy this week with the end goal of setting new guidelines for what is considered reasonable force. DPD hopes that this new policy will address controversial issues regarding the use of lethal force. Justine, Justine this seems like uh, it always is a big issue in, in the Denver Police Department, but this has been a long time coming. Uh, from what we know about it so far, what are your thoughts? Well, growing up in Denver, I've watched the police go through many scandals and watched many people, be uh, taxpayers, pay out many payments to victims of police brutality in the city. I mean, I've read through a lot of this, and it seems great, and I like this. I think that there needs to be more emphasis on implicit bias 
and more emphasis on how we hire our police officers, how we're screwing them. Who's temperamental enough to show up and, you know, actually resolve issues instead of ex escalating issues, which we often see and which I've often experienced growing up in this city. So I'd like to see more emphasis around that and see more emphasis on uh, diversity within the police force here in Denver. And I think those will actually help solve a lot of these issues more. Russ, what do you think? The Denver, public, the Denver uh, uh, Police Department is often in the news for use of force stuff. And I don't know how much is related to here is the policy on paper versus particular actions in this event by a particular person. Does a use of force policy really help address it? Well, I hope that it does. And I think a, a big part of policing, especially in a, in a major city, is whether your population trusts the police, believes in the police. And I think this is a big step in the right direction. And I'm not enough of an expert on police issues to say this is the right policy, this is the wrong policy. But I like the direction they're going and very much has to do with public confidence. And, and I guess I'd add, uh, slightly sarcastically, if you want to make sure that the police never use too much force, give them plastic guns. <laughs> uh, Patty, this seems like the new chief's first big test, although this process started way before he was sworn in. In fact, you can trace this process back to 2005 in the shooting of Paul Childs, who was a mentally impaired 15-year-old up in this neighborhood. Cops were called. There's some debate over how much they knew about his condition, but he wound up shot dead. And so there have been a lot of things on training, on when force is important. And this, this predates, goes back to Al LaCabe as manager of safety. It goes through a couple police chiefs. It's been delayed. Robert White was supposed to have released it. So now Chief Pazin has put it out, which is good. It's a good start. Let's make sure there's a lot of community discussion of it. And that when there are is there are allegations of excessive force, that there's a transparent discussion. David, you've studied these kinds of uh, use of force policies throughout the country, so you're a great person to go to with this. From what we've seen so far, what do you think of the new rollout? It's a good idea, and it reflects uh, appropriate negotiations and what which the police officers themselves and their union were were part of the discussion, as they absolutely should be. For example, there was an early one version said use of force has to be reasonable, necessary, and appropriate. And the union said, well, reasonable and necessary, that, that's got some guidance, but, but what, is, what does appropriate mean? How could something be reasonable and necessary and yet be inappropriate? So, so that was taken out. And another thing, uh, something that's being added, is use of force is often on, you know, what level of, you know, from a, uh, a taser, you know, all up, up through, through firearms. This also is going to, talks about the amount of force. So you may be using a, an appropriate amount of force to resolve the situation, but maybe after it's resolved, you, you ought to stop clubbing the guy over the head, for, for example. So it, it's all good. Uh, if you want more police brutality and more police br corruption, certainly the way to go is to follow the Los Angeles Police Department, which implemented a hard quota system and hired on race rather than merit. All the studies consistently show that mediocrity in policing is one of the biggest risk factors for all kinds of police misbehavior. So we ought to have the best police officers regardless of their race. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock unveiled his new Denver Right plans this week, charting out two decades of park and transit development projects in the city of Denver. Meanwhile, the mayor also announced a new harassment policy this week that calls for an outside investigation for any future complaints filed against the mayor. The previous uh, policy applied to employees of the mayor, but this one has been expanded to cover the mayor as well. 
Uh, Ross, your choice in this one, whether you want to go uh, harassment policies in the future or uh, big grand park plans in the future, uh, however you want to uh, take the, wherever you want to take the DeLorean, it's your choice. <laughs> the DeLorean. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll go with harassment. I'm, I'm a little more cynical about this one than I am about the police use of, use of force thing. But also it's a tricky situation, especially when you're talking specifically about the mayor, and hopefully we don't have to have these conversations again about this mayor or another mayor. But when you're talking about the highest elected official in whatever government it is you're talking about, it's not that easy to come up with a plan that you really know will apply to that person. They've tried in some ways. Um, I, think it's, I think it's better than nothing, but I, I do think that this mayor should have faced a little bit more for what he did than what he actually faced. It's better than nothing, but a little late. Patty, I've been uh, doing my history, and I recently heard something on a podcast talking about the, all the great things that Robert Spear did over 100 years ago, dreaming a city beautiful and all these big parks that people meant maybe necessarily did not want but now changed their lives now. Are we looking at this 100 years from now? Are we looking back at these grand plans of Denverite, or is this kind of what you do thinking in the future for someone else to do 20 years from now? The harassment policy or Denverite are we talking about? <laughs> uh, I think we'll be hearing a lot about the harassment policy as, the, as time goes on because those accusations against all kinds of people just don't stop, and they, too, need to be exposed. Uh, Denver Wright is interesting because it shows just how wrong good intentions can go. We did the rezoning 15, 20 years ago under Hickenlooper. They started really looking at it. Peter Parks came into town, very far-sighted. But the difference in zoning in a booming Denver and zoning in a Denver that was just kind of bumping along the bottom, the result was Main Street zoning, and you have all the buildings that go right up to the sidewalk in a lot of cases, and it's supposed to present a happy front. Well, we see just how happy the front is along Rhino. So is Denver right, the right solution, a little late? It could be. I mean, we have very little open space that is still going to be built on. David, a lot of plans for the future from the current Denver mayor. What do you think? Well, I would take the uh, sexual harassment policy more seriously if one could find it on the mayor's website, which it is not there. I did a search for the word discrimination, and there's various things like he wants to continue the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, but nothing about this, this, this new policy on the website. On the, the Denver right thing, this, this is the greatest and largest collection of platitudes and cliches that has ever been produced by any city government in the, the history of the state of Colorado. The parks thing, which is just one quarter of the thing, over 200 pages long, but you have to get past page 200 to finally get to the appendix of what, oh, what are we actually doing to implement some of these ideas now? And that's the difference with Spear. Is yes, Spear too had great vision, but he also did a lot of things as he was going along. And in the parks plan for what they're actually doing, oh, give give uh, Denver Public School students discounts for the uh, city golf courses. Uh, let's build some yurts maybe in the mountain parks so people can stay overnight. Fine, fine ideas. But what's conspicuously absent and all this talk about we need parks and tree canopy and all that, the city now owns the Park Hill Golf Course, and the plan, everybody knows, is to sell it to developers once the city park golf course renovation is finished. How about keep that Park Hill Golf Course as open space and parkland for the people of Denver? A note to any city officials out there thinking about putting out a policy, if you're going to make it 200 pages long and think no one's going to read it, you're wrong. David Copel is going to read it. Uh, Justine, wrap it up for us. So I, you know, this plan sounds great. 
it sounds wonderful, more parks, more affordable housing, but when I look at this and growing up here, I think about who is this plan actually going to work for in, you know, these next uh, 20 years? Who's going to who's going to benefit from this. We talk about affordable housing, but right now affordable housing or low-income housing that's being introduced or built is not helping any of the middle class in Denver. And so that's interesting to me how we'll go forward. Also the transportation issue, um, you know, prices keep going up. We talk about a city that, you know, is transportation friendly, pedestrian friendly, but it's not affordable for the average citizen. And so I'd like to see, you know, how we move forward and, you know, We'll see if we have the same mayor, you know, later on down the line to see how these things move forward. At the very least, we can say we're scooter-friendly, so yeah. we have that going for us. Time for a very, very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Cahoon, please start us off. Well, to return to Zanke, great comment by Justine, because blaming the liberal, you know, liberals for the wildfires, I just flew over much of the West getting here this morning, and it is incredible what is going on. Most of it is Mother Nature. There are... There are building issues that have been done. People who've moved closer into the wilderness, those are not necessarily lib less necessarily liberals. Two great books by Boulder authors, Megafire and Wildfire, dissect what's been going on in the last 15 years with fires. Both are fabulous. David. Bank of the West, which has announced it will cut off uh, any future customers involved, basically involved in coal or oil and gas. I suppose they, as a private business, have their right to do their virtual sign signaling and discrimination but it's generating a large backlash already and I think we really need to think the need to rethink the concentration of banks uh, banking power that's been caused by the Dodd-Frank law which has uh, really driven a lot of middle and community banks uh, out and made us vulnerable to the, the mega banks. Justine. Um, the Unite the Right rally this weekend, which I do believe in the First Amendment and the right to assemble, but I really um, have issue with it taking place on the anniversary of Heather Heyer's death um, from the violence that occurred last year. Russ. I'm, I'm going to go with uh, Chris Collins, a congressman from New York. And I was on the fence as to whether insider trading would be bad enough to make the disgrace of the week. But then it was reported yesterday that as he was being investigated by the Ethics Committee and then a prosecutor, he used campaign funds to pay the legal fees to defend himself against this. So he clearly gets my disgrace of the week. If you're going to go, go, go big. Well. Go big, that's right. <laughs> go big uh, go bumper well. sticker version of Say Something Nice, Patty. Clint Eastwood came here, filmed a movie without planning and without any corporate subsidies. David would love it. <laughs> David. Awesome. Uh, real men don't need corporate welfare. Uh, <laughs> President Trump signed into law a bill by uh, Ted Cruz today, which bans U.S. government funding for schools that have Confucius Institutes, which are Chinese communist-run propaganda organizations. Justine. Um, Care for Denver had their launch party last night, which is a ballot initiative to help provide uh, services of mental health and addiction here in Denver, and I think that is a great idea. Vote for it. Russ. President Trump had a meeting yesterday that no media covered, talking with Republican governors about prison reform and sentencing reform. It's great policy and it's great politics, and I'm happy to see Trump on the right side of it. That's something your Twitter feed. Nicely done. That's all the time we have for this edition of Colorado Inside Out. Take CIO wherever you go. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you name it. We are there. Check out our podcast on iTunes or Google Play. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night. We have the